Hello and welcome to the Licensed to Queer podcast, where we're on a mission to uncover why James Bond appeals so much to LGBTQ plus people. Why not see 007 from a different angle? Paul, you've written a whole book about camp. Where's James Bond in it? I was dreading you asking me that question, David. He is mentioned three times in the book, although in passing, I have to admit. So I don't have a whole section on him. Um, and I, I do I do say in the book early on that I can't mention every single camp thing that ever existed. And I hope that if I've missed your favourite thing, we can still be friends. Um, so I hope we can still be friends. Yeah, um, we, we can be I friends. I mean, you you did mention May, May West and Timothy Dalton playing opposite each other or with each other or whatever the hell was going on in that film, Sextet from 1978, okay. which I only watched about a year ago myself and I don't think I'll ever forget the experience. You mentioned Shirley Bassey, um, obviously, you have to mention Shirley Bassey yes. with camp and Austin Powers, which is kind of obviously related. You did also mention, I've just I've just um, remembered, you also mentioned cocktails being inherently camp, which is a big part of Bond. So actually, uh, I was lying. I had come prepared. So oh, I did, that is I lovely. Did. In my <laughs> orange, <laughs> it's only an orange squash because we're recording this in the afternoon. It's not a quantum <laughs> or anything more exciting. Uh, but I did bring a cocktail umbrella for those people watching the video version of this. So, so yeah, I'm delighted to have with me today um, Paul Baker, who is the author of this amazing book, um, and if you've not picked it up yet, I really urge everyone to do it. It's called uh, Camp! Exclamation points. Um, the story of the attitude that conquered the world. Um, and if, you, if you've read any other of Paul's books, um, you may have heard of, he's written lots and lots of books, but um, he's written uh, the ones that probably have been um, uh, most widely read by a general audience, a kind of not necessarily academic audience. Uh, he's written a book called Fabulosa, the story of Polari, uh, which is uh, I've written a teensy bit about Polari myself as a as a fellow intre- um, linguist. I've been interested in that. And as soon as you say secret codes of gay men, I'm like all over it, writing a James Bond blog and everything else. And you have also written a book called Outrageous, the story of Section 28 and Britain's battle for LGBT education. So as a as someone who works in schools that I, I absolutely raced through that book. And I love your books, Paul, because what they are is, although they're incredible, they are obviously really well researched, really academic, but they're so accessible and also so f- funny. Um, and I'm really grateful that you've managed to find some time today to talk to me about your latest book in relation to James Bond. Thank you so much. You're my ideal reader, really. I think I should just <laughs> I should talk to you about my next one, maybe get some ideas off you. What you like to see next? <laughs> <laughs> well, a whole book on James Bond and camp would be great. Thank you. <laughs> Consider it done. <laughs> yeah. So I, I yeah actually I did um, I do have half half a degree in linguistics. So I apologise in advance. Uh, the others in literature, um, the the other English discipline. Um, and obviously I'm gay and an educator um, and yeah so I think I tick most of your boxes as ideal reader Um, and and this is probably the reason why I every every one of your books uh, all three of those books I've read in uh, two to three days maximum which you probably don't want to hear because all the time it took you to write those books and then I always think that must be really frustrating I know, I've heard that a lot of people saying, I couldn't put it down, I read it all in one night. I just kept off having to read it, and it, which is sort of good, because um, it's you know it's not a chore to read those books as well. But um, yeah, it's 
maybe maybe it's like a big bar of chocolate that you just can't can't put down once you've picked up i think that's <laughs> that's why i use them that's exactly it, I think. Um, this this topic of your latest book camp is something really dear to my heart. When I started what I'm, I do online with Bond uh, about three and a half years ago, um, one of the things that I wanted to look at in some detail was camp and James Bond, because I, I'll be honest, I got re I was getting really fed up with people referring to James Bond as camp and also using the word campy, and we'll get into the distinction of that in a minute, but for me, what they were describing as camp and campy wasn't what I thought was camp. And I know there's a mm. lot of kind of the eye of the beholder here and some things find certain, some people find certain things camp and other people don't and so on and so forth. But um, the, the biggest barrier that I faced when I wrote my piece about camp about uh, two years ago was defining what camp actually meant. <laughs> so I kind of wimped out and said, um, if you want to try and understand what camp is, here are loads of examples from James Bond films. So I did it through examples. So, and I know we're going to talk. So perhaps if we start with examples and then I'm going to put you on the spot and say, have a go explaining what, what uh. camp is. So if you were to, th if I think of camp and James, and James Bond in particular, I'm, I can't help thinking of, and if you're watching the video of this, I am wearing blue toweling um, today for a reason, <laughs> because <laughs> the scene which screams camp to me is that bit at the start of Goldfinger, where he's supposed, Sean Connery's supposedly around a pool in Miami, but it's really a back projected scene somewhere probably on a freezing soundstage <laughs> in London. And he's wearing a Terry Towling romper suit. This is not a romper. I know you can't see below my waist, <laughs> but I, trust me, this is not a romper suit. Um, my shame. It is just the polo shirt. Um, and I do know a couple of people who've got the romper suit. I'm not going to say whether or not I think they can pull it off. I'm not sure even Sean Connery pulls off a blue romper suit, to be perfectly frank. But for me, because perhaps it's so artificial, that scene, and it's kind of what the heck is he wearing? Um, for me, that scene just screams. And it's supposed to be kind of luxurious, but it's not. It's a bit naff, to use a Polari word. Um, it's just, it's yeah, it just screams camp for me. So that's the first thing that I think of when I think of camp. What's the first thing that you think of? For the James Bond films? It does, no, from anything. From anything. Um, oh, it's a kind of sincerity that fails, I guess. Mm. Um, so it fails at being what it's meant to be, and it ends up being funny without the people who created it or liked it realising that it's funny. So I think in the book, for example, I talk, I talk about um, toilet roll holders, and my nana mm. used to have one when I was a child, and it was a, it was a doll, and, and the, the, the toilet hole bit used to go underneath the doll's dress and then sort of that kind of made made the dress shape and she used to have it on top of her toilet um and even though I was about six years old I always found that hilariously camp um that, that she had that and it was sort of seen as like pretty and it was hiding this toilet roll which was meant to be you know kind of an embarrassing thing but you're in a toilet anyway aren't you so it's like you know, kind of yeah <laughs> the horse is bolted by that point um but the fact it's a little doll like on the top you can't even use it as a proper doll but um yeah yeah so for me that that is kind of camp anything artificial is camp and so it's like a doll in itself is camp anyway because it's not mm. a real thing but then when you have it disguised as a toilet roll holder then it's sort of double camp so yeah 
That, that that example works for me. It's a shame you couldn't get a photograph of of that <laughs> for the book because your book has so many brilliant examples of things that perhaps I hadn't considered with camp before. There are there are obviously some things that that kind of scream camp to you, like um, I'm really into Noel Coward, for instance, and the film Brief Encounter. Mm. I've written written things about those because they sort of have tangential bond connections to them, and um, so those things have always struck me as being camp. But there are lots of things that, as I was reading your book, I actually spent, um, although I read your book really quickly, I also spent quite a lot of time putting the book down for a second, watching something on YouTube, like episodes <laughs> of Dynasty. There's a, the, one, of my, one of my frequent collaborators, um, short, um, Sam Rogers. He really loves uh, that kind of soap opera. Um, and he's always sharing those clips with me as well. And I, re I really kind of must get around to watching it properly, I think. But even clips of... Um, so, back in the day celebrity chefs really kind of losing their patience with people um, Fanny Craddock yes yeah Fanny Craddock who I'd heard of but never dared watch a clip on YouTube about and I was I was actually my husband wasn't very happy with you because <laughs> I was screaming with laughter um several nights as he was trying to get to sleep as I was reading your your descriptions of uh, of, of some of these things so thank you for introducing me to even more <laughs> Fanny Craddock would make a great Bond villain, I think, actually. She was wasted there, but there's definitely inspiration, maybe for a future Bond. She could, a character like her could definitely be in it, I think. If you have no idea what we're talking about, you owe it to yourself to type in Fanny Craddock and go on YouTube and spend a few minutes and then come back here. Honestly, yeah. it is. it will be um, a life-changing experience for you. Perhaps, perhaps they're overstated, teensy. <laughs> um, but you did, and you acknowledged this very early in your book, in terms of overstating things, um, you said the story of the attitude that conquered the world. And you said, you might have kind of gone a little bit overboard there. But what, what, why do you think camp is so important? Um, I, I think, I think it's, it's a way of looking at the world, which I suppose, particularly if you're from a kind of oppressed or minority identity, mm gives you a way of kind of reworking things. It gives you an attitude to deal and cope with with, with having that kind of oppressed or minority identity yeah. and that you can kind of some, sometimes laugh at the oppression yeah. and laugh at the mainstream and the, and the stuff that's trying to oppress you and kind of be outside it and, and possibly even above it as well. So I think for me, it's always been quite a good coping strategy, even from a very early age when I was at school. And I talk about in the book right at the start how I was kind of one of those boys who was always picked last for football and how... How humiliating that always was. It's kind of a real kind of assault on your masculinity when you're yeah. nine years old and you're last, and all the other boys think you're the worst at football. Um, and then I had a, I had a friend um, who was similar to me. He was always picked last too. So we kind of we'd always kind of hang out together on the football pitch, right on the far far reaches, and sort of make fun of everybody else. Um, and that was kind of our way of dealing with with yeah. being like the, the worst at football. Um, it's funny you say your friend Ian showed you the power of camp. Um, I yes. had very similar experiences to you uh, playing. I invented my own game of try to avoid the ball rather than <laughs> playing football or rugby at school. Uh, I didn't have a friend called Ian to show me the power of camp unless you count Ian Fleming, because I was a Bond fan from about the age of six. Um, wow. I, I had a go at reading a Bond novel when I was about eight, um, which, of course, blew my mind and also went completely over my head at the same time. Uh, especially all the kind of sexual content and everything mm. else. Um, but, but yeah, in a sense, Ian Fleming introduced me to the power of camp as well. So we've both got friends called Ian who who kind of show, showed us the way or provided some kind of escape 
from a world that we we felt we couldn't really connect to. And is it is it kind of true that a lot of I, I think sometimes I I sometimes do find myself saying the cinema being one of the few people actually laughing hilariously at something that probably isn't supposed to be funny. So is it is it supposed? It, it, I am that annoying person. Is it kind of true for you as well that you kind of feel like a lot of people aren't getting that this is supposed to be funny, or maybe it's not supposed to be funny, but I'm finding it funny. Do you get that a lot? I do, I do. Yeah, definitely. With with Bond, I think I have certain relatives in my family, older relatives, who love it for what it is. I guess on a yeah. kind of very, they just love the action adventure of it, and and they think Bond's brilliant, and and they just love it for that, and then. I suppose there's me and my husband and, and, and others in the family, maybe younger members. And we kind of, we love it as well, just as much as them, possibly more, but we kind of love it on another on other levels. Yes. And one is to kind of enjoy the, the kind of, there's an intentional camp in it, I guess, yeah. and, and an intentional camp in it. And then you can kind of watch it and be quite snarky and make fun of it, particularly sometimes when it doesn't always pull off what it's trying mm. to achieve maybe that those kind of failures which mm. which are kind of really at the heart of what camp is anyway the kind of yeah. the failure of sincerity um so, so yeah i think you can you, you can love it on many levels i think and, and laugh at it too um and that just makes it more enjoyable i, I agree there are some parts of bond films which are like how is anyone taking this remotely seriously and they're not the things everyone expects like a lot of roger moore movies they're actually the kind of ones that are supposed supposed to be more serious but i find them funny so we're, we're going to get into our bond examples pretty soon because i know you've done quite a lot of research uh ahead of this um you've re-watched at least four james bond films now that's dedication, Paul. I'm really impressed. <laughs> but, I, did, I did. Well, I was I just been on a holiday to, to Devon and Bear Island. It was a driving holiday. And the whole thing was we would stop over at different places mm -hmm. each night, different hotels on the way down from, from Lancaster. And I was going to have a week of watching Merchant Ivory films. And I, I had all those kind of prepared and ready. And then you invited me for the podcast. So I switched over to Bond. So I watched, <laughs> oh, I, wow. watched you, <laughs> I watched You Only Live Twice, Diamonds Are Forever, Honor Her Majesty's secret service and octopussy okay um, yeah and i also watched live and let die at easter as well in nice with my family i made i, I showed it so we could have a bit of a kind of snarky watch as well so oh, i've kind of got five in my head that it's sort of like which i've made notes on and things wow okay that's really impressive um I, i'm especially impressed that you did was it you only twice on a majesty's and diamonds forever which were actually released consecutively but you think about how randomly yeah. different those films are from each they are other so different. it's, it's yeah, mind-boggling yeah. isn't it yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, I, 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 for my notes for Another Majesty's Secret Service, I don't have a lot to say. I thought it was actually quite a serious film. I mean, it's it's kind of camp because it's Bond, but it, yeah. the other ones seemed to sort of had a wealth of you know notes. I was still stopping the film every five seconds to kind of write something <laughs> down. But with On Her Majesty's Secret Service, so it kind of it was just more of an impression of the whole thing being camp as opposed to certain lines and things. Um, so let's let's go through some examples in a second. If you had to okay. try and pin down. I couldn't help but noticing we've kind of ended up kind of moving away from trying to define camp, which is what happened when I wrote my article about it as well. It's like, I don't really want to pin it down. Um, but if you would, if you had to, I actually had the experience after I wrote my article of going on a German podcast, uh, which fully enough, um, I'm not going to try the name of the German podcast, the really lovely guys hosting that podcast. And of course, they did the podcast in English for that episode because my German is non-existent. But the podcast translated as In Her Majesty's Ear Canal. Um, oh. which I'm sure it sounds more poetic in German, but I was invited onto that podcast to try and explain what camp was. So I know how difficult this is, but you're going to find this a breeze. You've written the book. 
So, so go for it, Paul. What's coming? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I had this in chapter one of the book, and I was like, how do I define it? And then I read lots of different people's essays and things on camp, and everyone said something different, and some people were not very helpful, and some people had very, very long, long length, or lengthy kind of things, lots of examples, but not, not a lot of kind of content there. Uh, so I kind of got it down to four ingredients that, that kept mm. coming up again and again, and, and people seemed, seemed to kind of agree on. Um, so these are kind of my, my ingredients were things that are kind of over the top or yeah. excessive, I think. Um, so too much, I guess, I guess is one thing. Um, then we've got artificiality. So something which is not what it's supposed to be. It's pretending to be something else or it's fake, fake in some way. Um, then I've got acting against type. So something which is trying to be something, but doesn't pull it off in some mm. way. Um, and gender often comes in, in, in there quite a lot, particularly mm. with Bond. And then the last one is silliness. So just something which is sort of childish or flippant or, or kind of silly, non-serious, trivial, kind of frivolous in, in some way as well. So I'd say those, those are the ingredients. You don't have to have all four of them, but no. you have to have some of them at least, some to a greater or lesser extent. Um, and, 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 and then you've got this issue of whether or not it's intentional or not. If it's intentional, it's probably best called campy, and that's more than an American word. Yes. Coming about in the 60s or so, whereas camp in itself is the thing where it's meant to be serious. It's sometimes meant to be very beautiful or high art in some way, mm. um, but it just doesn't pull it off because of those other aspects of it, and then it becomes camp. But it's in the eye of the beholder, so what I see camp, you might not. Yes, and that's crucial, isn't it? So some it of is. these examples we're going to look at with Bond, people will be like, I don't get why that's supposed to be camp, but we'll we'll state our cases anyway. And we even might disagree <laughs> with some of our examples. Yeah, and that's OK. And I'm sure there are things you've noticed in the films which I've never considered <clears throat> to be camp. But we'll 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 see as we go through. I mean, what you were just saying about the difference between camp and campy for me, a lot of people. I used to when I used when I was growing up and I used to read the descriptions in the newspapers of you know the films, the Bond film that was going to be on on Bank Holiday Monday, and they used to write things like um, like Octopussy, campy James Bond adventure, but they never used those words with the Sean Connery movie. Mm. Well, they might have used it with Diamonds Forever, maybe mm. only twice, but not the early ones. Whereas actually, when I actually bothered to sit down and try and figure out what camp actually was and read Susan Sontag's um, brilliant notes on camp, which is what I riffed on for my article, um, I came to the conclusion, and I don't know if you agree with this, but the kind of earlier Connery films lend them. So I know you haven't rewatched those ones recently, but those films actually kind of fit the description of camp better than the Roger Moore movies, a lot of them, because the Roger Moore movies are trying to be silly in a way. So yes. in Octopussy, you have him dressed as in a gorilla suit, checking yes. his watch before, yep. you know, and I'm just like, there's no <laughs> way you can possibly take this silly. He's it's an silly. alligator at one point, isn't he? He's disguised he's, he's, as a crocodile or an alligator. That film like, is obsessed what? with animals because the director, but... John Glenn, bless him, he loves, loves animals. So he just tried to get as many animals into that film as possible. I so that's that. why Bond <laughs> ends up dressing up as so many creatures in that film and encountering so many creatures. Yeah, so for me, that's kind of, if you need to understand the difference between camp and camping, if ever I tried to kind of think what the difference is myself, and you said in intentional, um, mm. I don't think the Connery films were trying to be camp. Funny. Yeah, 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 you're right. they are. But they are, yeah, because they, they're, they're all extremely excessive and, mm. and, and, and kind of silly and 
And Bond himself is camp. I mean, he's this exaggerated yeah. version of masculinity. He's, yeah. he's, he's too masculine. He's, um, mm. and, and also he goes against type. I mean, most men aren't meant to be looked at, or they certainly weren't meant to be looked at and sort of objects of sexual desire in the in the 60s. Um, and, and, and Bond is. I mean, basically, yeah. he, and he, it's kind of, if I have an idea of a spy in my head, it would be sort of a, a kind of an almost like an invisible man, a grey mm. man, a man that you wouldn't notice mm. in the street. You wouldn't give him a second look. So we could get away with killing people and doing all those things. Whereas Bond is always gorgeous. And so yeah. whenever he goes into a room, everyone stares at him and wants to be him and wants to get to know him and sleep with him and stuff like that. And that's the worst quality if you're going to be a spy to be, to be so kind of on show and then wear all these clothes as well all the time. So... That 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 for me is kind of one of the camper aspects of it. The fact that he's so good looking, um, and he's so sexualized as well. He's always got his top off, you know, every film. And, and incredibly short shorts. I mean, people think yes. a, people think a short inseam is a Daniel Craig innovation. Um, anyone um, who's watched Thunderball, um, <laughs> I'm just like that. It's practically pornographic in places. It's like Sean, really. Um, <laughs> And all those shots I love, you've, you've just met, I love um, when he's checking into, uh, it happens in, happens in Doctor No, he checks into the hotel and the receptionist, who's always female, it has to be said, so we don't mm. get the gay gaze going on here. Um, although, obviously, in terms of the audience, you know, a presumed straight male gaze, obviously, he's erroneous. But she, the female receptionists always look, look after as he leaves. Yeah. So they're checking him out from behind as he as yeah. he the reception desk you're absolutely right he's so conspicuous you know all the all the hotel concierges know his name which suite he has he's he's the world's worst secret agent so i think that's why he's quite <laughs> calm i guess the only good thing about him being handsome is that he can he can seduce people he can seduce women yes. and get their secrets and things like that so i can see why but i think probably most spies you'd, you'd want them to be kind of anonymous wouldn't you so they're not noticed mm. and um yeah, so it, that that for me it make, makes it incredibly camp. And then you've got the kind of the women are all exaggerated femininity as well. They're all kind nice. of over the top with big hair and then the, the kind of clothes and the body shape. And then the glamorous locations. He's all every few minutes he seems to be going to a different part of the world. And they're all kind of these exotic holiday locations, maybe that that most people, particularly in the sixties and seventies, wouldn't yeah, ever, ever get the chance to go yeah. to. Um, they're very colourful films as well. The colours are really kind of, maybe not so much the later ones, but the early ones are, are like kind of looking at a children's colouring book almost. Mm. Um, very vibrant colours. I'm colourblind. Um, oh. And even I can notice. I, I like them because they, they've got such strong colours. Right, in them. wow. Otherwise, um, a lot of films I watch are just like watching black and white films. Mm. Not the bonds. Um and the the music so dramatic as well, you know, the kind of the full orchestra that you get, and the songs themselves um, are just amazing. The credits are just over the top too. Um, it's just all too much, I think. Yeah, uh, films too much in a different way. I think it is the too muchness out of all the four things. So let me remember: it was too muchness, essentially artificiality, people acting against type, type and, and, and silliness. I think out of all of those, I think Bond is the is the too muchness. I think that's probably the thing that's most common across the whole Bond series. Yeah. yeah, and I think at different eras or different Bonds, you get maybe some of the others coming in. So the Roger Moore ones, I think, are probably sillier. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe than, than, than some of the other ones as well. Um, and it kind of almost a childishness to the silliness as well because mm. children can watch them. I mean, you, you, you said mm. you're watching them when you were quite young, and yeah. children can engage with these films, and children can play Bond as well. 
um, outside and you know used to do that um, as a child as well. That's so what I was doing instead of playing football. You were playing Bond. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we've got the artificiality. Some of that is due to the filmmaking constraints at the time. So I already mentioned about back projection. The back and you watched, yeah. which he spoofed in the Austin Powers movie. Yes. As you know, it was just so because obviously it was so expensive to shoot on location. But you know what's really strange? There's been a, and I think part of it is due to COVID restrictions. There's been an increase in really naff back projection <laughs> in films <laughs> or the modern equivalent green screen, blue screen. There's been so, there, yeah. we've had so much of that in, in the last couple of years, particularly in the Marvel series, which they carried on yeah. making throughout. And I'm just like, it's kind of almost like a sort of kitsch return to unintentionally to the 60s. So I it find is. a lot of those things unintentionally camp. You can do it on Zoom as well and on Teams. You can do your own back yeah. projection now, can't you? And yeah. I've been caught up by that saying to somebody, oh, I love your kitchen. And then they're like, it's just a back projection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's come back. Um, the, the, the nighttime filter as well. Um, I was, mm. It was one of the ones I was watching with a, a very extended ski chase. And it all seemed to be filmed in nighttime filter and you can see shadows on the ground as well which don't, doesn't happen at night time so that, oh, that again is one of those things which is you know what I've never noticed okay. that that was on a majesty's then yeah I think it was yeah it was the majesty's one um and then the stuntmen as well obviously um I mean, he can't obviously do all of his stunts I guess although maybe he does some of them um and every time I like listen to the the kind of commentary or the little documentaries on the DVDs I always tell you about the poor stuntmen and how one had his leg missing or died and you only twice like yeah. And, um yeah there was a guy in live and let die who had to run across that that mm. pond full of alligators and yeah he got bitten to bits i think as well mm. <laughs> so, mm. um yeah i think we're sorry for the stuntmen on that on in the bond films really is, um, is live and let die the bond film that you thought i think it was the bond film when i first mentioned doing this you thought of the film for first and i think live and let die has so many camp qualities what really stood out for you Definitely, I think it's it's it was the one I it's the one I kind of watched at Easter and showed, showed my nephews and nieces on, on holiday. Yeah, I thought it's kind of the most accessible and silliest of of the lot as well. Yeah. I, I just love it. I love everything about it. I love the, the theme music and and all of the kind of voodoo tropes and stuff mm. and the bits where he's in that that kind of bar and and then the table the table keeps vanishing or kind of disappearing in different ways. Wonderful, wonderful. And that's that sort of silliness was really creeping in. It really is Diamonds of Forever, which is the sort of the watershed moment. For uh, there are elements of You Only Live Twice, but then the, the Bond series is strange. It goes through these in terms of silliness. It goes through kind of peaks and troughs. So it's like every time it goes to you know sometimes I I use the phrase it went goes full Moonraker. So <laughs> Bond goes to space in 1979, complete with disco version of the uh, theme tune over the end. I always think they they should have used the disco version over the opening title. Yes. Because that's, that song is a bit boring, to be honest. It it's, is. It's, yeah, it's not, it's not enough, is it? Whereas the no. disco version is brilliant. I mean, leaving aside the fact that disco only had about a month left of its lifespan. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the but then after Moonraker, they go back to For Your Eyes Only, which apart from dropping a uh, bald-headed guy in a wheelchair, which doesn't play particularly well nowadays, bald-headed guy in a wheelchair down a chimney in the opening titles, which is more about <laughs> trying to get rid of Blofeld so no one else can use him. Um, 
that film is actually he actually plays it straight until mm. until a parrot chats up Margaret Thatcher in the final scene. Um, yeah. So yeah, so, it, but yeah. for the most part, it's it kind of does, and then it kind of the silliness comes back in, and then it goes again, and then like in two thousand two, you had Die Another Day, and then they rebooted with Daniel Craig. Mm. So the silliness goes, it comes in peaks and troughs. In waves, so. yeah. And I think I think it, the, the Bond films have always tried to kind of reflect what's going on in society at yeah. different times as well so we do get sometimes where kind of it's it fashions are more camp and outrageous and then times when things are more serious and i think we're in kind of a a serious you know for the last 20 years yeah. or so i think things have been a lot more serious and fashions Definitely. have been a lot more muted and colors mm -hmm. more muted than they, than they than they used to be um and i think also there's probably so much more awareness of camp now yes that, that they can't get away with with maybe what they could as um in the past too many people would be along the joke and then it's then the joke stops being funny in, in some way um mm -hmm. but I, I think bond will always be kind of essentially camp even if they try to give him i suppose like emotional backstories and and, and dramas and and kind of character development I, th I think the kind of the essence of camp is, is, is always still going to be there because because it's about this kind of spy who's very British and, and dresses in tuxedos and drinks martinis and all of those things. Um, you can't get away from that 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 premise, which which is camp in itself, no matter how serious you make it. So many of those things are so affected, aren't they? Especially because, you know, Bond's 70 years old this year. Casino I was published 70 years ago. And, you know, the, the fact that um, he's, he, he's going around the world drinking martinis, which is a very retro drink. That's probably the only... Can anyone order a martini in a bar? without the bartender thinking, are they trying to be James Bond? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, so, some, his references are increasingly dated. I mean, you even see that in some of the, the earlier films. I think yeah. the one set in the casino where he's wearing like a white tuxedo. And that's... Oh, Diamonds that's of Forever. Of, that's like 1971, but yeah. he's not really leaning into the 1970s fashion. No. He's still kind of about a decade a decade before, yeah. beyond or earlier than, than everybody else in it. And that makes him look a bit out of time and bit, and that's that kind of failure um, again, he's sort of out of place there, and and then you, and then in some of the ones, he, sort of the, the actors are quite old. I think in is it Octopussy? Roger Moore is fifty five. Something fifty four, I think. Yeah, yeah fifty five. Yeah, I mean that's older than me. And and to do all those stunts and things, and I'm thinking like he's going to break a hip, and and the fact that he's still still so gorgeous and attractive to every woman who looks at him and everything, and it's like, well, maybe they all have I don't know daddy fantasies or something, but it's, <laughs> it's unlikely. That they all have daddy fantasies. <laughs> He's still a good-looking guy, but yeah, um, it, it it is kind of increasing the the kind of preposterousness of it. I I, I guess. <laughs> I it is sad in a sense that we could never perhaps have that sort of thing again. As you said, I found it interesting that you said we're we're almost kind of in on the joke now. But yeah, I, I'm not yeah, it's like sure. We're post camp. Almost. Yeah. So are we post camp? Are we kind of past the peak? I, I think I think they're still campy and um, but possibly even post campy now. I, I, I guess and that there's fewer people who can who who don't recognise it. Mm. I mean, something like the Barbie film, for example, that came out mm. this year is very camp, but it knows it is and it's playing. Yeah. With, it's also got yeah. a very serious side to it as well. So I always feel that. Like, camp things now are, are, are just so complicated to write about yeah um, to understand and you need all of this kind of referencing and, and kind of technical terminology to kind of make sense of it um in a way that you didn't 
in, in maybe 40 years ago when it was just straightforwardly camp and fun and wasn't anything other than itself. Um, but now everything's so clever. Mm. Um, which and is then not... again, I'm just trying to think, I've just been thinking as you've been talking about, I don't even, did you see the last one, No Time to Die? You've yes, I did. A character in that called Paloma, who's only in this, only in one sequence, played by um, Ana de Armas. Um, I think she's incredibly camp in the best possible way because she's an agent who's had three weeks of training she's kind of like an ingenue really um and i know there's kind of a character trope of like a mary sue which i don't i take kind of commentary on that that you know you empower women by not by just kind of making them brilliant at everything um and i but i love that character because yeah she's had three weeks of training um, one of one of the people who writes for my website says that um who who identifies as uh demisexual says that um they find paloma to actually be quite asexually coded which i think is Mm. interesting because when she first meets bond she doesn't um he gets the wrong he gets reads the signals wrong it's like no no you're taking your clothes off to get changed i'm not going to sleep with you what are you doing (laughs) but but so it's almost like that's that's very tongue in cheek, obviously, because we we know Bond's pedigree. And if it was in a Roger Moore movie, they'd sleep together and then go out. Yeah. But then she's she's wearing the most kind of delicately. I think it was made of crepe, this crepe black dress. But she's also double wielding handguns. So <laughs> she's subverting norms, which is is one of the one of your four criteria for camp. Um, and I think that's probably why a lot of people love that character, because we've got this person who's not trained, but he's very capable. Mm. Um, she's a woman doing stereotypically masculine things. Yeah. She's doing them better than most of the men. Yeah, definitely. And I, th- I think it's not just Bond who you can sort of read as camp in these films. There's a lot of yeah. female characters. I mean, I'm thinking of, is it, um, oh, is it Elsa Kleb or Rosa Kleb? Lo- Rosa Kleb, character. yeah. Rose Club, and then Irma Blunt as well. Um, yeah, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and they're kind of both coded as they're both queer coded. Yeah, yeah, kind of quite masculine women, possibly les- lesbian kind of yeah. characters, and and in a way for me, it shows that you know it's not just gay men who can be camp. Kind of, I think lesbians can be kind of camp, camp as yeah. well. Um, we obviously, they're, they're pussy they're, galore. They're, obviously, they're not they're not going to find him attractive. Obviously, no. if, they're, if they're that kind of woman, and and so his, his yeah. powers won't work in that way on them. Seduction. Um, and then you've got Mr. Wind and Mr. Kid. Yeah, those diamonds, characters yeah. in Diamonds of Forever. A very strange kind of pair, <laughs> pair of characters. I'd forgotten about them. Um, then I kind of reacquainted myself a few days ago with them. And um, they're quite fun, I think, in a way. The bit where they kind of walk off holding hands and then it's kind of, they're obviously gay. But they're kind of weird. They're not just like gay gay, but they're, they're like strange so um, we could end up doing a whole podcast about Wind and Kid. I've written about five articles about them myself, and I've talked to interviewers about them lots and lots. But I mean, my take on Wind and Kid is that they are horrendous representation of gay men. The fact that the BBFC re-rated Diamonds of Forever, mostly some of the sexual violence, but mostly because of the stereotypical portrayal of gay people. So they actually upped the certificate on the film on DVD a few years ago. Um, and um, but they are horrendously stereotypical in some ways, just plain weird in lots of other ways. And the the very final scene, he's like so yes. uncomfortably homophobic, where is. essentially yeah. he gets um, he gets a bomb rammed up his backside and enjoys it. 
Yes, so, yes, I mean, there's a squeak of pleasure or pain <laughs> and ends up being thrown over and, by bonds. Yeah, know, I mean, I, I can't think what eight-year-old me thought of that when I watched it for the first time with a growing awareness that I was gay and thinking, I'm not sure I quite understood exactly what was going on, but I knew it was kind of an attack on people like me. But for me, I still kind of take Winton Kidd as being a sort of positive representation because <laughs> they sort of do hold hands and they love each other, but... So the, I'm not I'm not even sure I'd put Winton Kid yeah Winton Kid to me in the camp category because I think I've probably thought too much about them and I take them too seriously. I don't know. What about you? They're almost like kind of written by somebody who didn't know any gay people but yes. kind of had heard about them from some yes. probably third hand yes. and then wanted to make something camp that's two characters camp and then and then that's mm -hmm. what they could come up with i mean there's a, there's a wonderful line by bond where he says one of us smells like a tart handkerchief it's offensive on so many levels anyway <laughs> no. <I> just... <laughs> just defend everyone <laughs> all at once yeah and it's it, yeah. it, referring to that like kind of one, one of them's wearing an aftershave or something um i think um and then he smells it and then he recognizes them later on and, and realizes that's the that it's the clue isn't it that the, the smell of the um but for me, that's the most camp element. It's not Winton Kid. It's the fact that Bond recognizes them by their aftershave. Aftershave, yeah. And I mean, in leaving aside the fact that how do you break a perfume bottle by putting a body on it? You know, it's. it's very, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's always annoyed me in that film. How do you break a perfume? Anyway, it's a, a. But the fact that Bond recognizes perfumes everywhere he goes. That you know, that's a very stereotypical gay trait. I mean, I'll, yes. honest, I'll I'll confess, I'm rubbish at spotting perfumes and scents, so I don't know where that stereotype comes from. But you know, it's certainly not what you would kind of put in the if you were to do two columns and go gay men, straight men, you'd probably put it in the gay men column. Um, you definitely would. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same. I'm I'm allergic to like a lot of scents and perfumes, so I just thought. I just start sneezing when <laughs> somebody puts it on. <laughs> I have to open the door. <laughs> but it's so typical of Bond's fussiness about everything. And I know a lot, uh, this has been highlighted quite a lot, you know, about the exact way he likes his martini shaken and all that kind of, it's all very kind of, um, yeah, it's just very, very fussy, isn't it? It is. There's a bit, one of the Daniel Craig ones, I think maybe the first one, Casino Railway, he checked into some hotel and like, it's not good enough. And he kind of yeah. immediately leaves and books them all into like a nicer one. He has um, a right hissy fit. And then says, yeah. uh, she, um, Gemma Arterton's character says uh, that uh, this has blown our cover. And he says, I've made a new cover. We're teachers on sabbatical. Yes. <laughs> and we've just won the lottery. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm dying to use that line. If I ever check into a hotel that luxurious, I'm a teacher. I'm on, I'm on holiday. I've just won the lottery. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a there's a kind of class thing I think going on possibly mm. with Camp and, and Bond as well. And that he's he's obviously for me for someone like me who's not who's from a working class background, mm. Bond kind of comes across as quite aspirational. Possibly yeah. went to public school. He's very clubbable. I'm sure he'd fit in in all the Palmar mm. clubs and things like that. And um, you know, Mo Five. It's all kind of wood panels room. It looks like a club in itself. And then you've got Q, who's, who's even more of a classic than Bond is. Um, this is what I find well. fascinating about the difference between the books and the films. And I don't think Bond is much less camp in the books. In, in, in A lot of what we've talked about applies there. But Bond in the books, he's, he's very much an outsider pretending to be an insider. 
Whereas there's actually explicit passages where Fleming says he feels really uncomfortable in a club environment in the novel Moonraker, for instance. That's probably where it's most explicitly stated. Where it's on film, you can't show that as easily. No. You can't get inside Bond's head. So it almost is like he effortlessly moves through these upper class worlds, even though he himself is not upper class. He's not. Mm. Maybe more with Sean Connery, you get that impression because Sean Connery was not from that world. No. initially as well but someone like Roger Moore just feels feels yeah. like he fits in with, with that well so much yeah. and I think with that kind of upper class masculinity there's a kind of maybe an effeteness mm. um, mm. and you know the, the mm. knowledge of the good wines and the cocktails and almost maybe an otherworldliness as well where they're kind of the ordinary concerns of, of people like mortgages and bills don't don't matter to them but they're just jetting off to another location as well mm. and his voice is just so I mean, it's not it's not kind of the poshest voice, I think, but it's it's very kind of received pronunciation. It's always very steady and and, and self assured as well, and particularly when he's in danger, mm. um, and he doesn't he never reacts with an emotion. It's just maybe to make a little ironic quip or something about his situation, a little commentary on it. But again, that only serves to to show how unflappable he is and and, and kind of beyond kind of ordinary concerns. Um, and I talked about that in the camp book with Penelope Pitstop. She does it as well, and I think it's a kind of thing that that heroes tend to do in, in, in these kind of campy... Um, it's almost kind of, like that kind of in, stiff upper lip British stoicism, which is, very much you know, so. for instance, in like Brief Encounter, like, uh, you, um, uh, um, please help me to be sensible, you know, and all, all, <laughs> all that brilliant stuff, um, which incidentally, I found out the other day that um, uh, Celia Johnson is... Um, is actually uh, related to the Flemings, uh, but that, 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 that's by the by. Um, but that kind of stiff upper lip British stoicism is, it's almost, because it's so out of its time, I think that's probably why we find that, uh, I find that element of Bond really camp. It's probably the part of the Bond that I, of Bond that I probably try to emulate. So if something really bad happens in real life, <laughs> Rather than just go, oh, my God, I'll just kind of like try to keep it contained and go, well, that's going to be expensive. You know, something like <laughs> that, which is, you know, it's like, oh, God, inside you're just dying and you're like, this is disastrous. But you try. And I think that's very camp about Bond. It is. It's, it is very British as well. I think that kind of not yeah. showing it. And I think it's a thing that kind of I did as a child when I, you know, in, in, in situations where I was being picked last, last football and trying to just not show that you're upset about it just mm -hmm. by making some little little quip or something to kind of get out of the situation to not show you care. So I think there is a power in doing it. Mm -hmm. I think it's something that as maybe a, a nation or maybe the world is, doesn't do as much as it used to. I think we're much more now kind of, we're expected to be authentic and to get very emotional very quickly when things go wrong and sort of show our emotions a lot. Whereas Bond is the opposite. Bond's not about showing emotions. No. Um, he's about keeping things quiet. What, one thing I, I will mention in, in partly it's why I didn't write about Bond in this book is that the next book I'm doing is about language and masculinity and I want to have oh. Bond on the cover of the book um, I'm just in talks with publishers about, about mm. getting a photo um, and I've done a bit of an analysis I've got all of the Bond I think there are, are there 12 books 12 Bond books uh, 12 First novels book. and then two books of short stories yeah yeah so I got them all um, put them through a computer this is the kind of analysis that I do when I'm not writing about corpus linguistics yeah corpus linguistics yeah, yeah. and then I, I was kind of looking for words and phrases that that relate to bond's use of language in, mm -hmm. in the books in the novels and one three word phrase comes up the most often and it's bond said nothing ah. and that occurs 13 times across the books it's the most frequent phrase which 
directly relates to oh, Bond. Oh, I didn't language. know that. And because um, I was expecting it wouldn't be something like that. I was expecting him to say something like "shut up, girl" or something, or you know, or, or to say something in a certain way. But it's not. It's actually the books are a lot about him not speaking, about him using silence um, in in order to, I suppose, convey wow. a presence or a masculinity, and. That kind of makes sense in a way, I, I think. They're, they're action films. You don't expect them to be chatty and to have conversation. I mean, he's actually not a very good conversationalist, I guess, I, I, from, from my perspective. Um, Fleming Fleming himself said um, that he James Bond is someone things happen to ooh, yeah. rather than him being... So all of this talking, you know, in, in gender and, and cinema and literature around narrative agency that characters have, Actually, if you look at Bond's agent, Bond is not a particularly active agent um, in the books. A lot of the time, things happen to him. To him, yeah. And he, he kind of nudges things rather than actually actively does things. And I think that's reflected in the way that he talks a lot of the time. James Bond is actually quite a good listener. He will mm. actually take on board everything people are saying. So, yeah, he's... I know he kind of has this reputation of being taciturn and um, that kind of ties in with masculinity and stoicism, but that goes right back to Fleming, who was who 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 didn't want Bond always voicing what was going on in his head. But that's the brilliant thing about the books, because you can kind of see what's going on show in that. his head. Yeah. And I think it gets, it's that exaggerated masculinity where mm. he doesn't have to talk. He's just he shows power with silence. And there's a wonderful bit, I think in Diamonds are forever. There's a scene where he's actually, it starts with Bond said nothing. And it's a bit where he's on a date with Tiffany Case, I think. Mm -hmm. And and they barely speak for the whole of this date. And then yeah. sort of they get back to the hotel and they're in the lift and she says, fifth floor, please. And he doesn't say anything to the, the, the kind of elevator guy, um, even though he's not on the fifth floor. And she gets out and then he just follows her and doesn't even say, like, I'm going to come to bed with you. And wow. she kind of goes down the corridor and he follows her down. And there's kind of an assumption in his silence that he's going to have sex with her and, and she, she'll let him. And then she gets to the door of her hotel room and she kind of turns on him, she has a speech prepared and then she can't do it and she just kisses him instead. And he wins and he gets what he wants just by saying nothing whatsoever. So there's not even an attempt at seduction. It's just his silence is just, I'm going to have you and I'm not even going to say I'm going to have you and you're going to accept it. Which is <laughs> sort of camp, I suppose, in the sense that, you know, would it be acting against type for that sort of character i think it's, it's, it's exaggerated masculinity it's yeah. that it's that sense of entitlement that mm. you would expect a certain type of man to have i think um and i, I think possibly now it's even worse than, than it would would appear yeah. maybe in the 60s when the book or the 50s when the when that book was written maybe, maybe mm. that was seems more acceptable but um now it just seems so so over the top i think um that that someone would act like that i mean it would like, look like stalking almost you know kind of following yeah. somebody down the corridor <laughs> yeah one thing that the books don't have really are bad girls. So in the sense of, you know, they are the villains. So they were an innovation mm. really for the films, uh. um, which I I always find those characters a massive kind of locus for camp. So Fiona Volpe, the flamehead vixen, literally she, her name Volpe means, you know, fox. She's um, this, this flamehead um, character who... 
um, rides a motorbike that fires rocket launchers out of it. And then you've got a sort of similar character called Fatima Blush. I mean, just the name alone. The names. Who comes again. up with these names? Are these names in the books? Or are they the, the the the, none of these names are in the books. I mean, Pussy Galore is there in the books. Um, and there's a few other choice ones as well. But uh, Plenty O'Toole. Plenty O'Toole is not in the books. No, sorry. Sorry. What about Chew Me? Chew Me is. <laughs> when you actually see them in the cold light of day like this, it's like, oh, God. Out of context of the film, isn't it? But you've, I mean, you've got probably on a par with Pussy Galore, you've got Xenia on a top from, from Goldeneye, which, um, and then, uh, so she's kind of, all three of those characters, Fiona, Fatima and Xenia, I think are really brilliantly queer characters. And then you've got the only time we've actually had a main villain who's a woman is Electra King in The World Is Not Enough. Mm. And she's brilliantly camp as well. I mean, Sophie Marceau plays her so brilliantly without letting on that it's so over the top. Um, and I, I think those so they are some of my favourite characters. I know a lot of other um, queer viewers of Bond, particularly gay, gay guys, love those characters. And I think it's probably because they kind of have a set, even though they're the villains, they're kind of... They're a, a, a sort of oppressed minority, you know, women, and we identify, not a minority, but mm. they're an oppressed group, and we identify with those figures. So, I, and I think there's lots of other examples in your book of those sorts of women who have suffered as well. And you point yes. out people like Judy Garland. Yeah. I wrote a whole thing about Skyfall being a, being a version of Wizard of Oz. Um, so as I was reading that, I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I can kind of, kind of see that that helps that fit even more, really. So do you, do you think those characters stand out to you as Cam? Very much so, I think, I think yeah, yeah. And that, there's that kind of potential identification, whereas you've got Bond as the kind of normal heterosexual man, and then you've got the kind of, the, you often don't have gay representation in the films, no. do that. those weird characters yeah. that don't occur very much. But then the Bond girls or the Bond female villains, if, if, if they're in there, or the, the ambiguous characters sometimes who start off bad, then go good. I think I think for for kind of gay men to watch those films, you, there's maybe a bit of vicarious identification. I think so, yeah. The same way maybe that like you'd have with say a Betty Davis film or something. Yes. Or, um, in the past, yeah. Yeah. So, is there anything else? I think you mentioned the only thing. The thing I remember you mentioning as we we talked about this initially was layers and villains. Layers. Yeah, yeah. So Le the, what did you make of the layers? I'll admit it's not something that I'd. I'd really thought about too much in relation to camp, so I'm really interested to know what you thought. Well, I think there's there's nearly always a layer, and yeah. they and 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 they they're often so so huge and, yeah. and sort of you just think how can they be hidden away and sort of not not someone not stumble across them. There was sort of there was one in the volcano, I think, and then or they're underground yeah. or they're on the that, moon. That's like the ultimate. That's yeah. The, I mean, if you but, were to have a layer, hollow out a volcano. Sticker rocket launcher pad in there, yeah, great. But they remind me of business class lounges in airports a bit, I think, because they're they're so big mm. and then and then they're often quite style stylish, stylized as well, quite stylish, I, I guess as well. And then you've got these little boogies that people can travel on monorails in them as well, I think. And that reminds me of being in airports where you can see people kind of going around on these little boogies, um, and and and. And and then there's usually a bit where he's kind of given a cocktail or there's a, a kind of pond or something with like killer fish in it or something as well. And a lot of business class lounges sometimes have water features. I was kind of going from um, from South Korea 
and stopped over it, I think, Dubai in, in a business class lounge then recently. And it just felt like I was in a Bond lair um, the whole time I was there. I know what you mean. They're almost very corporate in the sense of <laughs> you can almost imagine behind the scenes the bureaucracy involved with keeping the volcano lair running. Like you can imagine <laughs> who's in charge, who's HR, because they've got an absolute nightmare. Whenever someone gets thrown in the piranha pit, it's like, it's like oh my God, how many forms do I have to fill in now? <laughs> you know, and th 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 some of the later films actually play into that a little bit. So I don't know if you noticed in Diamonds of Forever, one of my favourite bits of Diamonds of Forever, and it must have been done intentionally because it's a set. It wasn't a real oil rig that they used for the interiors. I mean, the fact that they're on an oil rig is brilliantly. <laughs> People think the end of Diamonds Forever is rubbish because an oil rig, it's not very exotic. Mm. But I love the fact they're on an oil rig because it's not very exotic. It's like the worst place. Um, and then you've got this big sign in the background which says, if you don't know, ask. So it's like the health and safety team <laughs> in the oil rig have put this massive sign up and it's accompanied by a shot of the doctor who's been lulled into thinking he's going to win a Nobel Prize, but he's going to end the world instead, saying to Blofeld, you know, what are we doing here? And it's this massive sign above him. It's like, I don't know how anyone doesn't find that stick. Well, I, I think I think a lot of people don't like Diamonds of Forever and that version of Blofeld played by Charles Gray because it kind of does give the game away. And it kind yeah. of, yeah. Yeah, I, I I really liked it, and yeah. I thought the theme tune was the, one of the darkest, most depressing yeah. songs. When you listen to the lyrics, where it's about a woman who's basically given up on men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The diamonds won't leave her. They linger a lot, a lot, not like men. It's such a depressing song to start off with. Well, but, the fact that but, uh, you do know the story behind that song, don't you, Paul? No, she's not talking about diamonds. Who is she talking about? What uh, when Shirley Bassey asked John Barry um, what she was like, I don't understand the song. Why am I talking about diamonds? So John Barry said, so don't talk about diamonds as if they're diamonds. Talk about diamonds as if they're penises. Oh, <laughs> well, it's a whole new level of camp that I didn't even know was in that. So song. I'll refer you to the uh, line, touch it, stroke it and undress it. And I'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> um, for you to reevaluate Diamonds of Forever. I have to go time. and listen to it right now again. If you want the, if you want the best version, um, in my opinion, apart from the Arctic Monkeys, which is brilliant because they kind of take away <laughs> some of its kind of glamour, and I love it. But there's a version by David McCalmont and David Arnold. So you've got a, and in the video, both of them uh, wear quite feminine kind of attire. Mm. Uh, David McCalmont's a, a gay man as well, but the video for it, if you watch it on YouTube, is dripping with camp. It's absolutely brilliant. So I'm not going. I'm not going to spoil that. I love it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Licensed to Queer podcast. I really cannot recommend Paul's book enough. So wherever you get books from, look out for Camp, the story of the attitude that conquered the world. It's receiving a lot of really positive critical attention today. As of the time of recording, uh, it's actually been called the best book of the week in the Financial Times. It's really, really funny, as well as being really, really informative. Can't recommend it enough. 
And if you want to read my original article that I wrote about James Bond and Camp, it was actually back in January 2021. I've just checked. So one of the things that I wrote in the first year of License to Queer's existence, you can find that on the License to Queer website. And there's direct links to Paul's book and my article in the show notes for this episode. Thank you.